I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Jeff's off this week, so it's me on my own at the controls. Uh, be afraid, be very afraid. We we thought, Joel and I, of um, recording this introduction after uh, the England game uh, or doing what Jeff and I normally do, which is pretending that we'd recorded it after the England game. But we decided to do neither of those things because I don't think you really want my hot take on the result. You know the result. I don't. We're talking about a really interesting subject um, this week, which is the right to disconnect, which is the idea that people should have a right to disengage from work emails, messages and calls outside of their working hours. And there's an obvious context to this, which is that as we've talked about on the podcast before, the rise of remote working over the last year and a half is, I think, going to have a long-standing impact on the world of work. There's this idea of hybrid working, so you know, working at the office, working at home. And some people are worried that remote working is blurring the boundaries so much between home and work that it makes it much harder for people to take proper time off from work. And we're going to be exploring whether a new right to disconnect could help. First, we're talking to Anna Cox, a professor of human-computer interaction at UCL, about the importance of work-life boundaries and how we can protect them. Then to Andrew Pakes from the Union Prospect about why they are campaigning for a right to disconnect for workers in the UK. And finally, we're talking to Caroline Souvoyol-Rialand about what we can learn from France, which implemented the world's first right to disconnect in 2017. And our cheerful person this week and this is a really interesting book, is, is it's youth worker and writer Kieran Thapper. Uh, his new book is Cut Short. It's a book about youth violence. It's, it's a really interesting uh, conversation. Just before we get into my reason to be cheerful, I just to say on this right to disconnect, I must say I, this episode has really made me think because 
I find disconnecting very, very difficult. I was brought up in a household where my dad, my mum really took work very, very seriously. And I can't, and I won't quite say that I always feel guilty when I'm not working, but I think the combination of my upbringing, the, the, the pattern of work that I have done in politics, working for Gordon Brown, being leader, it's very, very hard to feel like you can switch off and that switching off isn't somehow a sort of abdication of responsibility. And I suppose this episode has really sort of made me think about the kind of work patterns of politics, the work patterns that the people who work for me face, and how you really protect people's boundaries and time. Now, look, obviously, you know, my experience is in politics, but politics is, you know, is is unusual in some respects, but it's certainly not exceptional when it comes to these issues. And I think the 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 rise of you know email mobile phones has in some sense had some good aspects to it um but it has also made the invasion of our space and our time much much more pervasive i think and so it's a really important conversation now my reason to be cheerful uh this week it's about a book um it's a it's a book called the lorax and um you know that the context to this is that uh, in uh, 2018, 2019, we were planning a big year of culture in Doncaster, where I'm an MP. Uh, one of the things we were doing was to get the Booker Prize uh, to do some events uh, in Doncaster. Obviously, the pandemic had a sort of massive impact on our ability to sort of really pull this off. But the Booker Prize did do some events and there's going to be an exhibition around books and literature um, uh, in Doncaster sometime in the next couple of months. And I, and I was having my photo taken for this um, w- with this photographer and, and asked to sort of name my favourite book. And I chose The Lorax and I hadn't realised that The Lorax was actually published in the early 70s. It's a, it's a doctor's use book um, and it was published in the early 70s, but I don't ever remember um, reading it as a child, uh, but it is an amazing book and it's quite far-sighted because it is all about who will speak for the trees. And I think it was sort of really interesting thinking about, well, A, that it was very, very forward-looking, that it feels very uh, kind of relevant. And even though it was published in the early 70s, I I don't know, other people listening to this podcast may have a different take on this. I feel like my generation, well, I I certainly missed out on it, but certainly for my kids' generation, and I was talking to some young people in the park where I was having the photo taken in my constituency, and they all knew about the the book. And maybe it's become, maybe it's just because it's partly because it's become even more relevant. Anyway, if you you don't know the Lorax book, um, whether you've got kids or not or kids you want to read to i strongly recommend it and it was my choice for this uh, booker inspired exhibition reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd so to start our conversation about the right to disconnect about remote working and about some of the issues uh, that there that are that are raised i'm delighted to say that we're joined by anna cox who's professor of human computer interaction 
at University College London. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Let me ask you this question. How did you become the Professor of Human-Computer Interaction? Were you good at computer games as a child? I used to watch people play computer games. I grew up at the seaside where there were lots of arcades and all my friends used to like to do that and I used to watch them and then have continued doing that actually, watching people use computers. But what games were people playing in the arcades? Was it like Pac-Man and stuff? Exactly those sorts of games, the ones that people... Uh, perhaps first played in those arcades and then on the first game consoles that people started to have at home. Well, look, that's that's a really interesting sort of background. Tell us a little bit then about your work, if you might, uh, and and about uh, sort of what your perspective is on these questions of work, technology and well-being. I guess I've been looking at people using technology for work for a long time now. And as part of that, looking particularly at people who work from home. So when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden there was this big switch to lots of people working at home, we've been doing a number of studies trying to understand what people's experience was. And we've seen people have um, discovered some of the benefits of it. So in terms of being able to combine working with caring responsibilities much more easily, for example. But also people have experienced the challenges that come with remote working. Those include things like um, finding it really difficult to take breaks in the day. And also when we get to the end of the day, we haven't got a train to catch. What is there really to make us stop working? There's endless amounts of work and it's very easy to think, oh, I'll just do that one extra thing. And and so many of the people we've had in our studies also reported that their workday extended much longer than it ever had done. And they just found it really difficult at the end to, to switch off and say, OK, that's enough now. So... What does good work-life balance look like? You've got this uh, idea of boundary control. Talk talk to us about that and and what we should be striving for. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really important when we've been working really hard is that we are able to disconnect at the end of the day. And we have to disconnect in order to be able to recover just from the normal stresses and strains from work. And if we don't do that, then that those sort of normal stresses and strains turn into chronic stress, which itself can turn into burnout. And we know that in those sorts of situations, people's productivity goes down. Um, they, they become really quite unwell and unable to work. So it's not in our own interest to get in that situation. And it's not in our employer's interest for us to get in that situation either. So implementing strategies to enable us to switch off and to have a good work-life balance become really important so we can have time for the other parts of our life. So that might be, you know, engaging in your personal life, having relationships with your family and friends and so on, but also so that we can engage in leisure activities Because it's all of those sort of like the rich tapestry of life, all those other activities that actually help us to restore our resources and make us fit for work the next day. How do we get boundary control? What does it look like? We need to be able to somehow switch off from work. 
And it used to be, for if you were normally based in an office, that as you left work at the end of the day, you literally left work behind you. You walked away from it and you didn't have to think about it anymore. When it's in your home, you don't have that neat physical boundary. You're not moving to a different space. Um, So you have to find other ways to try to do this. So one way could be to use different bits of technology for things you might do for work and things you might do for home. So for some people, that might mean having two computers, one which they use for work and one which they use to watch Netflix on. Um, it, It means doing things like if we only have one device perhaps taking some of the access to work things off. So removing access to work email from your phone so that you can't be tempted to engage in your work when you're on holiday or in the playground with your kids or having a conversation with your friends. Kenneth Clark doesn't have a mobile phone, or at least he does have a mobile phone, but there's only one person who used who I think has his number uh, at least this was when he was an MP and when I was doing a bit of work with him when I was a backbencher it was very difficult to get hold of him indeed yeah um, and I was once writing a joint article with him and he was at the cricket um, and he decided we didn't end up doing the joint article because he was at the cricket <laughs> and I sort of think well in a way good for him and he actually said to me afterwards I would have saw him sign that article but unfortunately I was at the cricket I mean there's sort of more extreme versions, aren't there? I mean, just switching off your phone. I mean, it's hard to do if you're an employee because the problem is of expectations of employers. It's one thing if you're Kenneth Clark, but it's another thing if you're absolutely you know, working for a, a boss. Absolutely. And and this is where the real struggle is for many people, that they feel that there is an expectation to be available and to respond and to respond in a very short time frame. So often people don't feel that it's okay to ignore that email until tomorrow and to respond tomorrow. So I think this is really where there's an opportunity for policy to really help um, help the employees and help the employers negotiate this kind of situation. So those sort of policies around um, the right to switch off enable they they start with a conversation I think between the employer and the employees about what this might really look like because it might be um, tempting I guess to start with to say okay well we'll just tell people that they're not allowed to email after a particular time but if we do that we're now removing some of the benefits that came with flexible and remote working in terms of enabling people to work at different times of the day and fit it in around other responsibilities. So having conversations about how we want to work and and how we might implement some of those boundaries helps us to get to a point where we're thinking about what our expectations are and we're negotiating um, a position where we don't expect people to respond very quickly. So later in the episode, we're going to talk about the right to disconnect. What do you think the answer is for policymaking? Do we need a right to disconnect? You you sort of touched on it just now, but it sounds like ensuring the conversation happens rather than a hard and fast rule. Is that right? Yeah, because I think that if there's a bit of a danger that we could end up with poorly designed policy that doesn't really work for the people. 
and and when we're trying to empower people and take advantage of some of the things that come with flexible working which aren't just about being able to decide when and where you work but also include enabling other people to take part in the workforce who weren't able to do that before because they couldn't commit to the kind of very constrained way that an organization was operating so i think in terms of how we design policies we really want to have organizations think very carefully about what their policy is going to look like and how they're going to implement it. And Anna, okay, let me ask you the million dollar question. What about you? How sort of effectively, in terms of your colleagues, in terms of the way you work, do you, do you manage to, to catch yourself thinking, uh-oh, I'm slightly breaching my own, <laughs> my own principles here? Well, for a really long time, I've worked flexibly and... Uh, and a kind of hybrid model of some days in the office and some days at home. So I've had a long time to try to find out what works for me. And and I think this is something else. It's a really important point that what works for me is not the same now as it was before I had children, when my children were really small. And so I think really what we need is to have something that's flexible and that can cope with the way that our lives change. So I think in general, I'm not bad. My working days are longer than I might like them to be, but but I'm not bad at it. Well, look, it sounds like you are quite good at observing your own principles. When you're working from home, I think it's something I, you, I read that you wrote saying it's quite good to sort of break it up by doing some exercise as if you're going to work. Yeah. And then... yeah so that's another really good strategy for um, kind of topping and tailing your day is using something that we've been referring to as a fake commute. So instead of going straight from the breakfast table to your desk, pretend you're commuting to work and go for a bit of a walk outside And at the end of the day, try and do the same thing. Not only does it work really well for helping you to switch from kind of home mode to work mode and then back out again, but it helps you get some steps in. And that's something that we could all do with a bit more. I'm totally in favour of that. I'm obsessed with that. Anna Cox, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Your watching of the your friends playing in the arcades has was obviously a very good training for thinking about these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Now to talk further about how a right to disconnect might work in the UK, I'm really pleased to say that we're joined by Andrew Pakes, who's Director of Communications and Research at the Prospect Union. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, lovely to join you, Ed. Let's start by asking this. Prospect is calling for a new right to disconnect in the UK. What is the right to disconnect and and why do we need it? Yeah, we're really worried, Ed, coming out of this crisis that if we don't rewrite some of the rules about new working patterns, we're not really going to end up with flexible working. We're going to end up with burnout. Yeah, I think over the last year, we've seen people all across the economy, you know, working incredibly hard, longer hours, more intense hours. The right to disconnect is about saying if we're going to if we're going to have this new normal, uh, which works for more people, then we've got to have, you know, we've got to have a platform on which flexible working is built. What then are you demanding in terms of a right to disconnect? What what what's the substance of what it would look like? So we want a mix of 
things. We want some, it can be small things such as ensuring that workers understand and know they that you know they don't have to work out you know normally beyond their their working hours and they should be respected for that it can be things like email signatures i you know, i work a variety of hours so on my emails i just have a you know i've sent this because these are hours i work don't feel you know respond when you're next back on duty so there's some real small nudge things i think it's about getting managers to understand how they have their conversations with co-workers and colleagues uh, but it's also having a, a way you can raise this if there is a concern about it that if you you know if you're regularly uh, being contacted when you're not on duty or you're not working. You've got to have ways we can resolve these conversations. Now, given the state of the UK economy and the state of unions and all sorts of things you've covered in lots of different podcasts, uh, and I think we both wish would be slightly different in terms of how things work, we're calling for the government to include this in their employment bill. So we would like, I think we'd quite like something like the French model, maybe a bit different, where there's an obligation on bigger companies. So we think probably 50 employees and more, uh, an obligation for them to set out an annual plan with their workforce about how a right to disconnect. What are the boundaries between when and how you're contacted outside of your normal ways of working? And so, Andrew, there are different examples from around the world. There's a French example, which we're going to talk about uh, in a minute with a French expert on these things. And there's an Irish model. Just explain to us the difference, for example, between those two models. Yeah, look, there's some, there's some, I think we've all learned lessons during the pandemic. So I think all of them should be a basis to build on rather than what we do here. Firstly, you've got the, the French model, which sets a, an obligation on companies to each year set out and negotiate an annual plan, but allows some flexibility to companies about what that should be about. On the other side, you've got the Irish model, which is a, a code of practice. It sets out a bit more detail about what a right to disconnect should include. Uh, and it's if a company breaches it, you can then use the right to disconnect code in a tribunal to bring it up. So it's a bit more prescriptive. But you've also then got the third model, which is the enterprise model, which is nothing stops companies at the moment negotiating with this. And I said some big companies in telecoms, uh, Telefonica, uh, Vodafone have done some of this work, Renault, you know, who are already thinking about this. So, you know, alongside government, we're also speaking to individual companies about what they can do now about this. And is the right to disconnect compatible with every job? Are there some industries where it's hard to avoid it? Yeah, and yeah, and that, but that should be related in paying conditions. You know, I, you know, we, you know, we all know colleagues who might do out of office servicing, or you might be paid a bit more to do. You know, if you're if you work in media or press, that should be reflected in your contract. If you've got, you know different hours that should be recognized in the nature of work you do but you know we have these contracts they don't necessarily work for workers at the moment so how do we build in something which is better coming out of this crisis talk about the interaction of this with, with the right to work flexibly because in a way we want to be able to carry forward some of the flexible working patterns that people have got including hybrid working but we don't want it to be sort of a, a complete invasion of their personal space so how do we do both of those things i think the short answer is it's going to be complex but i think moving to a wide scale approach of flexible working is going to be complex in itself but the prize is quite big if we can give people more control and agency over their working lives whether that's working at home a lot of the week or simply having the flexibility to do the school run 
then you know that's going to be a major change to the economy. So we would say the right to disconnect is about how you ensure that how do we ensure flexible working actually happens? You know, we're all going to be working this jigsaw of different working patterns and different times. And we've got to have some golden thread that runs through that that says, you know what, if if I normally work seven till three, if I'm still being expected to answer emails every day at five o'clock, something's gone wrong. So, you know, if you look at things like the Irish model that says you do have a right to disconnect, but also you, all of us have you know, a role and responsibility to respect each other's working shifts and working patterns. So some of this is about, you know, worker to worker and us understanding how this, this features. And some of it's about management. All of these, you know, clever people that have predicted the death of the office and the end of presenteeism. I think we'd all like to see the end of presenteeism. The, the risk is we create a new form of digital presenteeism where you might be working different patterns to your manager, but they still expect you to respond. And we spoke to lots of members. I spoke to you know journalists doing stories on this and others who say they can all identify with, you know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night emails, which you know aren't an emergency. It's not a rush, but you get it and you feel pressure. But then you get the other pressure that if you think, well, actually, I'm going to continue bathing the kids and not respond. Will you be marked down? Yeah, and often, yeah, and there's a real issue around, particularly women who you still carry the, you know, the major line of home care. If you're saying, well, actually, I'm not working on a Friday night. It's not an emergency. And Terry and Barry and Gareth all respond to their emails. Do they get the plum job next time because they're regarded as well? Actually, do you know what? They respond quickly. I'll give them the next gig. We have a, th- a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy or the Paixocracy. In the Paixocracy, what are you offering us in terms of as employees? I'd like us to be able to have a right to switch off from work. So, and I said, you know, it needs to be more flexible than nine to five. But, you know, I don't think anyone's suggesting we won't have employment contracts coming out of this pandemic. What does a modern employment contract look like if we work flexibly? And how do we get some rights and responsibilities? How can we say, you know, outside of my normal working times, unless it's really important, I have a right to not be penalized for switching off and doing family relaxation and other things? Just for the individual worker who feels overstressed, over-demanded by their boss in terms of emails and contact, what what would the difference be in the world that you're describing? So I've sometimes said to people, you know, if you're not working on a Friday night, you're about to have dinner with the family and your boss knocked on your door barged into the house and sat down at your dinner table and started talking about work and demanded you answered them, we'd clearly know that's wrong. That's a really good way so of putting it. So what's the digital equivalent of not allowing work to constantly barge into your family time? I mean, that's a really good... Uh, you're making me feel quite anxious now. Uh, um, no, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And in a sense, it points up the fact that the curse and the blessing or the blessing and the curse of modern devices is that the equivalent of barging into the house is possible. Well, look, Andrew Pakes, you've certainly made me think about the way we work. And I think this is an area that we've it's absolutely imperative that we focus on, think about and act on. So thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. Lovely to join you, Ed. Well, to talk further about the right to disconnect and and how it's playing out 
uh, in France. I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Caroline Souvayol-Rieland, who is professor at Sciences Po in Paris, expert on the right to disconnect in France, and CEO of So Comment. And she joins us, she told me, from her holidays uh, in Aix-en-Provence. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be with you. In fact, we are rather contravening the right to disconnect by connecting you uh, to our podcast. So thank you and apologies for having uh, disobeyed the right to disconnect. Tell us, uh, Carolyn, to begin with, why did France introduce the right to disconnect in 2017? In 2015, under the Prime Minister Manuel Valls and Miriam El Khomri, Minister of Labour, Bruno, uh, they, they asked Bruno Metling, former director of Human Resources of Orange, for a report on digital transformation and life at work. Uh, for them, uh, the digital can be a bearer of risk for the health of employees, so it is a necessity to anticipate. Uh, the French labor law provides there are 11 hours of minimum rest time between two working days. But with the digital, it's now potentially possible to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So this is, you know, overflow work. Uh, this is Bruno Metling, who uh, proposed the, to introduce a right of professional disconnection. And tell us wh- what is the what is the right to disconnect law? What does it entitle employees to and what does it tell businesses they have to do and so on? The law uh, is effective uh, since 2017 and provides for the possibility for the employees to benefit from rest period and live without contact with his professional activity. Specifically, it requires companies to negotiate annually with employee representatives on the regulation of digital tools within the company in order to create the conditions for the exercise of this right. Failing agreement, uh, a charter must be drawn up and the company uh, must also provide training and awareness raising measures uh, for the recent use of communication tools. Are there good companies, Carolyn, that are doing really well uh, with this right to disconnect that you would point to their particular practice? For me, uh, the regulations put in place by companies are indicative of their commitment to the problem. I explain myself. The simple uh, signature respect of the right to disconnect, uh, like at La Poste, uh, in the mail, is strictly useless. (laughs) It's useless because everybody sends the the emails. The principle of non-response in case of late late dispatch, as at Renault and Michelin, it is a little better. Uh, But as the individuals set their practices on those of their manager, the effectiveness of the measurement will depend solely on him and his practices. The screen that intervenes signaling the sending of uh, an email outside normal working hours to ask if we really want to send the email, the principle of two clicks instead of one, uh, is a little stronger. It is a little, uh, a little better. 
The company actually retains the email and only sends it the next day at the first business hour, uh, only truly guarantee the right to disconnect. And you have also a, a, a last thing interesting, uh, <laughs> an employee of Orange can, can uh, send a mail at his uh, human uh, resources manager to say that uh, his direct manager sends him email uh, at uh, 10 p.m. or at uh, 7 a.m., you know? So it's uh, an alert. What has been the result of the law uh, in practice? The impact remains minimal. Uh, 75% of companies have not implemented the right to disconnect concretely. The majority of them have signed non-binding charters. Uh, 15% have signed an agreement, rather in large companies. 82% have not defined a time frame during which the employees uh, are reachable. Uh, so there is a real problem of effectiveness of the law linked uh, to the fact that the text does not imply any coercive solution. And do you think the legal route that France has pursued, the right to disconnect, do you think it has, even though it is imperfect, not perfect at all, do you think it has lessons for us? Uh, I think it's a good thing because uh, it's a... Um, it's a debut, you know. A start, a start. Yes, it's a start. Uh, it's a long way. <laughs> but uh, we know that uh, in Luxembourg, there is uh, uh, also a proposition of law. Uh, in Belgium, there is a proposition of law too. So uh, I think uh, we have been uh, the, first, uh, <laughs> the first to begin uh, with this law. And uh, it's, uh, it was uh, an ex a cultural exception, but I think a very good <laughs> cultural exception. Well, look, Caroline Souvayol-Rialand, it's been fantastic to talk to you. We have interrupted your holiday. We have broken the right to disconnect, but we're incredibly grateful to you for having explained the French experience to us. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I get to do this, what we call the upsum, all on my own. I, I really found that fascinating. I think I, I got to start with Andrew Pakes and this metaphor of the boss barging into on, uh, sitting around the dinner table. And um, it sort of made me what kind of worry about myself um, uh, as a boss. And, you know, politics is a 24-7 business. And I think it's really important to try and respect the boundaries. I don't think I'm very good at it, really. And I think I should be better at it. I talk in the book about working for Gordon Brown and unplugging my phone on Saturday and Sunday mornings. This was in the days of landlines in order to avoid being woken up by him in the mornings. But I can't, you know, I I tend to work too hard, which is also something I say in the book. So, you know, I think it's really important. And I think I really liked Anna's point that it sounds obvious, but that if you're frazzled, if you work too hard, if you're stressed, you're going to be less productive at work. So it's not just the right thing. It's the right thing in principle because people's lives deserve to be protected. But also it's the right thing for work too. And then I'm interested in Caroline and, and Andrew on the solutions and indeed Anna. Anna's suggesting some 
some things we can do ourselves that are important about different phones maybe not like ken clark not have a phone or it's kind of difficult um you know not having your emails on a personal device all of those things they seem to be taking the the fake commuter walk uh, or fake commuter journey um if you're working from home um i think the french law the irish law they they're obviously not the complete solution but they are really really important and, and i think the most important thing I feel about this, and this is why I'm really glad we did the, we've done the episode, is we need to have this conversation. Um, I think the conversation was sort of necessary before the pandemic, but but the more we are going to take up ways of hybrid working and so on, it makes it even more important that we start to talk about this and talk about what what are the boundaries? What you know? How do we have as Anna calls it boundary control? Where do we draw the line? What rights should employees have? Because, you know, there is a massive issue of power in this. And I don't think we can ignore the issue of power. Who has power at work? Who doesn't? It's one thing if you're a boss. It's quite another if you're, you know, an employee, if you've got a boss, all of those things. You know, if we really think that work isn't the only thing that matters and that there are more important things than work, then it is very, very important that we 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 show that and we demonstrate that and we live up to that uh, in the way in the way we organise things. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on the right to disconnect, we really love hearing from you. You can go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, and you can find out how to email us from there. Um, we, we do read every email. We, we love hearing from our listeners. So please do um, get in touch. Uh, this one comes from Fiona Thorne, and it's about cold water swimming. Uh, she says, I've been enjoying the cold water swimming references and looking forward to your thinking woman's James Bond pictures in the tabloids. I also enjoy cold water swimming and have done this recently while heavily pregnant with my four-year-old in my local Lido or Lido. 
debate to be had there in Brightlingsea in Essex. I saw our local MP there on the last visit. He wasn't swimming. It was in a terrible state for years and neglected and not prioritised by the local council. It was then taken on, is my understanding, by the Brightlingsea Town Council and made into a charity. Locals were encouraged to volunteer to extensive repair and provide expertise from their professional experiences to make the pool usable and open again. It has been a labour of love to the local community and it gets better every year. Forget the last year as it had to shut. The cafe attached is being rented by some young locals who use meat from the local butcher. The volunteers are amazing and friendly. It's extremely inclusive and provides a good value, family, day out, tourism and money into the town. I personally just love swimming there and the feeling it gives me and it meant I've swum more in the sea and rivers since. I thought you might find it interesting with the episode you did on community enterprises and the solution not just being in the public sector. This one comes from Bev Nicholson, Ed Sandwich Shop Idea. I had an idea while you're dismissing Ed's Sandwich Shop Idea. This may not capture the vibe Ed was going for. But what about a shop where you order sandwiches a little like we do pizzas? You have a range of fillings and can add sliced peppers, lettuce, etc. for a bit extra. But, and this is a crucial bit, the sandwich shop worker makes it for you. Less mess, more hygienic, but still personalised. I mean, there are sandwich shops definitely that do that, Bev. I suppose this is going to sound like pedantry. Um... I sort of never quite feel that when you do that, you get the right amount of the the things you want. I mean, I, you know, I sort of think I might have to accept defeat or make your own sandwich, but it's something about you being able to do the ingredients yourself. I think it's something about the making of it, which, um, you know, something you make yourself, you're always going to get the exactly the right quantities you want. But, but maybe that's just, maybe that's just me. The last one comes from David uh, P. Um, and it's about bikes. From your recent episode discussing whether to use bells on bikes, it is compulsory in the Netherlands. There is a common saying of red is dead, referring to the colour of the bike lanes and bikes always having priority. Thanks for the great podcast. Always entertaining and informative. I met Ed once when he was campaigning and have always wanted an update on his handshake. My memory was it was surprisingly gentle. Just like me. Um, he also says, could we do a an episode on cargo shipping, one of the most polluting industries? And I think there is an interesting, I think there's definitely an interesting idea here. We'll investigate. Thanks so much for your emails. Uh, please keep them coming. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Now, in our cheerful person slot uh, this week, uh, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Kieran Thapper, who is a youth worker, writer, and the author of a new book, Cut Short, Youth Violence, Loss and Hope in the City. And I, I can strongly uh, recommend it. Uh, Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, well, thank you. Um, look, first of all, perhaps just tell us to start with how you first got involved in youth work after you moved to Brixton in 2015. I just completed a master's at LSE in political theory. And during that master's, I was, I'd signed up to be a volunteer mentor. And because I was, I found myself to be good at mentoring and also really inspired by it during that year, I then uh, moved to Brixton and yeah, sort of aggressively applied to lots of different charity jobs to try and kind of continue doing mentoring and working with young people. And um, that's when I started um, working in schools. But simultaneous to that, I yeah, started volunteering at a community centre in Brixton. And the community centre in Brixton is really the heart of your book. Just talk to us a little bit about 
arriving at the community centre, volunteering to start the sort of what they thought of you, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. all of that. You know, I, I grew up in the southwest suburbs of London, so I'm familiar with London. I've always called it my home as a city, but nonetheless, I'm not from the inner city. I'm middle class. I, I don't have a huge amount of experience in terms of like just everyday life, especially as a young person in South London, in Brixton. So naturally that meant that me turning up to volunteer, uh, it was all new to me. It was all new to me. I was learning. Um, I was suspected of being kind of comically, but kind of semi-seriously for some of them too, of being an undercover policeman at the start. You look a bit like an undercover policeman. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. thanks. <laughs> it's a short haircut. Not that I know whether they're undercover. Actually, undercover policemen probably have long hair cuts. So exactly, anyway. yeah, unpredictable. But nonetheless, exactly. yeah, there, there was a general distrust and there was an understandable distrust and anxiety about who I was, what I, my intentions were. And But it's it. I was very, very fortunate enough to have a mentor who in the book is called Tony, um, who who is the managing director of the centre. And he sort of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes and, and advocated for me for, well, until now, until, you know, for, for years and it hasn't stopped it, allowing me to really learn a lot and the book you know cut short tries to document my journey as I as I learn these things and it is your journey and that's why it's so fascinating and, and important um it, it's but it's about as the title says about youth violence in the UK tell us a bit about the argument of the book and also about the four people whose stories it follows Dimitri Jamar Carl and Tony obviously you've mentioned yeah so the so the story um of cut short goes from essentially me, uh, as we've just discussed, be, being a master's student and starting to find my feet as a mentor to becoming a fully fledged youth worker and education worker in, in schools. My mentoring sort of then expands out from that and becomes about specialising in working with young people who are potentially finding it quite difficult to engage with mainstream education. So I work in schools, I work in youth clubs. There's one chapter that focuses on, on prisons because I worked in prisons for six months. And the four main characters in the book, um, Tony and Carla, so Tony's the mentor of mine who runs the community centre. Carl is a young man who's at the community centre who um, gets excluded from school and I sort of support him through um, quite a, a challenging journey. And then Jamar and Dimitri are two young people that I mentor in different charitable settings. But again, throughout the whole book, it's sort of trying to really give their perspectives of, as two young people who are navigating these forces successfully. And they're, they're now you know great advocates for their for their community and um so yeah the books the books hopeful ultimately but it follows all of our journeys and and you go through a number of themes policing education social media youth services talk to us about these systemic issues and you know for a lot of our listeners understanding the the nature of youth violence put it that way um and, and what your understanding is about some of the causes and some of the ways it's talked about in the media and so on and, and how that is different from some of the reality. So I think um, in general, how people understand youth violence or knife crime or however you want to call it, um, the phenomenon of young people harming one another in a serious way um, in, in violence, that phenomenon has never not existed. It's always been in the UK, in the world, in London. Um, it's been pronounced in you know poorer communities that are struggling, that are finding it hard to survive, where young people are, are pitted against one another in really sort of potentially quite tight um, environments. That's always been there, but I think what's never been fixed is how to prevent it or write about it or tell stories about it. And I think one very serious repercussion of this is that the wider public, the general, the average person on the street only accesses stories about violence in headlines, which tend to just 
throw up a mugshot and tell you who's been killed or who's killed. Um, and maybe the estate that they were killed on or the street or whatever. It's very, very shallow. What's the thing you want our listeners to know about youth violence and the causes of it, which they wouldn't get from the headlines? In almost every instance I can think of that I've um, written about, studied, mentored someone through, you know, there are incidents in the book where young people are killed and young people who are very close to the characters in the book. It, it's understanding that almost every instance of that, and, and, and you know, any youth worker will tell you this, Although, obviously, at some point we have to give personal responsibility, you know, when someone gets to a certain age and they commit a crime, they have to take responsibility for that. In so many cases, if not all cases, this, you know, this, these back and forth flurries of violence that take place that lead to young people being harmed are the result of these forces that are just completely overwhelming these often children. Um, and of course, you know, when you get to a 20, 25 year old it starts to become, yes, we need to give them agency, they're, they're adults, they've, they've made the decision to do this. But at the same time, a lot of those, even those people, those age, those ages are, are ultimately just further along the same line, right? And when they were 14 or 15, had someone stepped in then, they wouldn't have been on that track. So it's really trying to understand that this isn't about uh, evil young people who are innately bad going around doing things to one another because they want to do that. It's trying to show their perspective and show what's going on in their head when they get excluded from school and there's no one at home to cook them dinner and a policeman is very physical with them on the street and then someone threatens them with a knife and like what impact is that having on a 14 year old's mind you know how much how useful is, is it that we give that 14 year old all the credit for for their decisions in that moment i think we're all responsible for trying to trying to um, ultimately support them better now, you talk in the book about potential solutions and a public health approach to youth violence. We had on our podcast, and I, I, she was an absolutely brilliant interviewee and an incredibly inspiring person. We we had when we were in, in Edinburgh, uh, Karen McCluskey, who has done incredible work in Glasgow on these issues. And I know you mentioned Glasgow and the work that was done. Talk to us about your your thinking. The, the public health approach towards solving serious youth violence is an easily, uh, you know, anyone can say it and it can it can and has been appropriated to mean anything. It makes sense, right? You look after people, you give them good health, therefore bad things won't happen. But I think um, it, it should be articulated in quite a specific and practical way and it should be taken seriously. And that's why I try and argue and cut short. Um specifically through my role as a youth worker, understanding that, you know, there is a pipeline that takes place and it, and it, it, it is quite predictable often. Um, and, it, and it drags other people in around it. It's not always that demographic, but it, it, it's often very predictable, that pipeline. And I think a public health approach recognises that in order to care for a young person, in order to support a young person and prevent them getting onto that pipeline, it's it's going to take a lot of different actors. It's not just going to be a policing issue where uh, we send a signal to a 12 year old that if they carry a knife, they're going to get locked up. And then that's their you know journey in the criminal justice system started at a very young age. It's not it's not going to do to just be punitive the whole time at a very early stage. And this government has opted for that. You know, there's so many bits of evidence, as I document in Cut Short, where punishment is is the favoured tool of trying to prevent these things. But a public health approach would say we need to work with different actors in a coordinated way. So it's yeah, not just policing and criminal justice, but also schooling, also mental health, 
um, also the NHS, you know, different areas of it. So I think it, I try and make the argument that we are all ultimately responsible for it um, and we need to solve it. And, and you're keen to emphasise that while a, book, a lot of the book is about loss, it's also a book about hope. Why are you hopeful despite all of the pain and, and, and so on? Yeah, so hopefully, as, a, as has already been uh, implicit in what I've said, it, I'm not saying that, um, you know, I don't think the hope should just supersede us. You know, we have to capture the loss and we have to capture the tragedy and, and really process that as a society, um, which can only be done through proper storytelling and, you know, trauma-informed public health approach. But I just don't see the point in reinforcing these stories that, that only tell about tragedy which is why in the book you see through the three main characters, all of them face an array of different barriers that could easily pull them into cycles of violence. But all of them ultimately not only survive, but finish the story of Cut Short thriving. And Dimitri and Jamar, who have been part of the promotional, you know, last few weeks of the book with me, are now two of the most articulate and impassioned and capable young advocates against youth violence that you will find. And so I'm hopeful that if we guide young people in the right direction and support them, you can create solutions out of them. You know, they are the solution that Jamar and Dimitri embody the solution I'm talking about. So I'm hopeful that although all this stuff's going on, there is also a lot of good work going on as well. And I think there's a whole generation of young people who are fed up with this problem who are taking it upon themselves to try and fix it. So that's why I'm hopeful. Well, look, it is a very inspiring and important um, piece of work. Um, and, and I'd encourage people to, to buy it, to read it and to act on it. Uh, Kieran Thapper, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, uh, we're in the outro. Uh, I'm recording this on Sunday and I sort of can't help a bit of boastfulness, which is that I uh, I did an hour's cold water. It wasn't actually very cold, but I did an hour's, what do you call it, wild swimming, open water swimming this morning. So I'm feeling extremely, and all done before 10 o'clock in the morning. So I'm extreme, feeling extremely uh, virtuous. Uh, forgive me if that sort of kind of puts you off your... Uh, puts you off your week so I'd like to thank our guests who I think were excellent Anna Cox Andrew Pakes and Caroline Souvoyol Rialand and also um, writer Kieran Thapper and and I strongly uh, recommend his book Emma Caution produces our podcast with brilliant research advice and shaping of the podcast by Joel Pierce, with backup by Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed C does our music. James Deakin produces our idents. And our artwork is designed by Henry Cull. I've been Ed Miliband, Home Alone, and this has been Reasons to be Cheerful. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.